Welcome to What Christians Should Know, how you can apply biblical principles to everyday life. Greetings to all. My name is Dr. Elijah Sadafel. I trust you've had a restful summer and I'm glad you have returned for the second volume of What Christians Should Know. Let's get started. In the last series, I spoke about faith excessively and on many occasions did not refer to Christianity, but instead to the Christian faith. The reason why is that faith is central to the idea of the Christian religion, central to the idea of the redemption of humankind, and central to the idea of one of the core doctrines of Christianity, that we are saved by grace alone and through faith alone. Romans 10.17 says, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. The ESV of Matthew 21.22 says, And whatever you ask in prayer you will receive, if you have faith. The ESV of Hebrews 11.6 says, And without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, and that he rewards those who seek him. In Mark 11, verses 22 to 24, it says, And Jesus answered, saying to them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they will be granted you. The formal biblical definition of faith can be found in Hebrews 11.1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The HarperCollins Bible Dictionary defines faith as trust in or reliance on God who is himself trustworthy. Let's dissect this definition from Hebrews. First, the Greek word for faith in this verse is P-I-S-T-I-S. This word means fidelity, the conviction of the truth of God, and particularly the reliance on Christ for salvation. This word conveys an overwhelming sense of trust. Second, notice that faith is different than hope. Faith is, present tense, the assurance of things hoped for, future tense. Faith works in the present, and that faith is grounded not in uncertainty or doubt, but in assurance. It is from this certainty, grounded in the truthfulness of God and His promises, that we then look forward with hope into the future. Now, without getting too technical with language, it is important to note that hope in a biblical sense differs from what hope means to an American in the 21st century. In the contemporary world, Someone can hope that their spouse buys them a nice gift for their birthday. They can hope that the Yankees make it to the World Series. They can hope that their toddler will not throw a tantrum when the family goes out into public. In all of these instances of hoping, the future is uncertain. But as R.C. Sproul writes, when the Bible speaks of hope, it is not referring to a desire for a future outcome that is uncertain but rather a desire for a future outcome that is absolutely sure. Based on our trust in the promises of God, 
we can be fully confident about the outcome. Third, by implication, we now understand that faith is never blind or ignorant because God's promises are trustworthy. Because God is the truth, we therefore have assurance in our faith, which projects into the future as certain hope. Hebrews 6.19 says, This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast. Faith is the assurance, which comes from the Greek word hypostasis, meaning concretely the support of something or confidence. Faith is the assurance just as hope is an anchor, two things that are held firmly in place by something sturdy and reliable. There is no wavering and that stance is rooted in something that has enough weight or importance to hold the ship in place against hostile tides. That anchor represents the promises of God. Again, Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The root word of conviction in Greek means proof or evidence. The fourth point, then, is that faith is the proof or evidence of things not seen. Since evidence is something that we can know, this knowable proof points directly to God, who reigns over all things both seen and unseen. So while many things are unseen, for example the future, I have faith in and believe in God, who rules over and knows everything about the unseen. Romans 1 and 20 actually tells us that God reveals the unseen to us through the seen. The text says, For since the creation of the world is invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. So while I may know nothing about the unseen, I have faith in the one who does. So if God tells me about an unseen promise, and I trust God, then I can trust in the unseen simply because my faith is in God, one who is reliable and who is incapable of lying. People unfamiliar with God think it is irrational to trust and believe in him. History has provided a different perspective. God has proven to be so objectively trustworthy and reliable to humanity. The most illogical and senseless thing a person could therefore do is to reject his promises or the things he says. And that truth is not out of reach. It is accessible to everyone, not only through the Bible, but also through natural means. As Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Notably, faith exists not by our own doing. Faith is a gift from God as a function of God's grace. Faith is a divine gift because humankind has fallen and is corrupt, and therefore we are unable to achieve faith due to our fallen natures. God's grace therefore enables us to believe and to have faith in Him. A logical question quickly arises. If God is the only one who can give me faith, then why should I bother doing anything if nothing that I do matters anyway? Well, if you don't know God, 
then the single best thing you can do is seek him and learn about him by hearing the preaching of the word, by going to church and reading the Bible. Because, as it turns out, you may not know about God and have faith now, but you cannot be certain what future God has in store for you. Another way of saying this is you may be certain that you are a member of God's elect, but you cannot be certain you are not a member of his elect. The cost for anyone to leverage his or her uncertainty for apathy is the loss of eternal life. Hearing the preached word is a powerful force, and the word of God will not return to him void. Isaiah 55.11 says, So will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the manner for which I sent it. Faith that is like a child recognizes a reliable and trustworthy father figure, but it is not babyish or an immature faith based on lack of knowledge or understanding. This is why faith comes from use of the senses, not the rejection of reality. Romans 10.17 says, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. It naturally follows that with more exposure to the word, and with more hearing of the word, faith would increase. And this is exactly the case. Hence, 2 Corinthians 10.16 says, but with the hope that as your faith grows. While 2 Thessalonians 1.3 says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting because your faith is greatly enlarged, and the love of each one of you toward one another grows even greater. This also explains why Jesus qualified some people as having little faith, example, Matthew 8.26, and having great faith, example, Matthew 8.10. Other people also believed, but still asked for help with their unbelief. For example, Mark 9.24 says, I do believe, help my unbelief. In the modern era, people tend to think of faith as something they are at the center of. They construct faith as something that they develop. However, in the Bible, God always stands in the center, and it is His divine initiative and trustworthiness that opens up the way for people to respond to His fidelity. The Lord and the Lord alone is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, as it says in Psalm 18.2. And... Because God has chosen the elect, his promises are therefore intended for this group who now engage in a relationship with him. Hence, faith begins with God, and this involves the individual in the context of relationship with the Lord. Without a true and trustworthy God, and without a relationship, faith ceases to exist. Faith is not a subjective experience. It's never my experience nor what Jesus means to me. If that was the case, then faith would vary from person to person and what applies to one would be invalid for the next. The reality that one plus one equals two 
holds true, not because I feel like it's true, but because anyone can use their senses to perceive this actuality. Again, Romans 10.17 says, So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. The word of Christ is unchanging, and the objective power of faith comes from this timeless and static word. People and experiences change all the time. If personal experience determines faith, then faith becomes null and void, contingent upon emotions, and wavers in the hostile winds and turbulent waters of life. If faith was based on experience, then one amazing sermon would get me fired up for Jesus. But what happens when the fervor of the acute event fades? Get another fix for God? That sounds more like an addiction than a long-term commitment. If you sat through a sermon and didn't feel anything, or you read a Bible passage and didn't become overwhelmed by the Holy Spirit, God is still God, faith is still faith, and one plus one still equals two. The Synoptic Gospels, or Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, did not testify as to how the experiences of God made them feel. Rather, they testified to the factual reality of Jesus, his teaching, his death, and his resurrection. Thus, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever, as it says in Hebrews 13.8. The same facts can be learned and appreciated by all of humanity equally, which explains to a large degree why God chose the written word as a permanent medium to reveal himself. In The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis says, These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols breaking the hearts of their worshippers. For they are not the thing itself, they are only the scent of the flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. In other words, good experience is never something that we're looking for. It's something that we have in pursuit of something else. Our objective faith rooted in the objective truth and trustworthiness of God, will certainly yield many experiences in our lives, but endlessly searching for the experience will distract you from the real pursuit, God. A doctrine of experience-based faith opens up a very large door to counterfeiting. On the one hand, it can perversely say, if you don't have this experience, then you don't have faith and don't belong to God chase the experience. This leads to sensations of personal inadequacy and the glorification of the rare and miraculous at the expense of the ordinary. The Bible is a highlight reel. Guess what happened in between all of the sensational moments? A lot of ordinary, regular, and very plain everyday life. On the other hand, a doctrine of experience-based faith can perversely say, If you do have this experience, then you don't have faith and don't belong to God. This leads to legalism and artificially constrains what faith should quote-unquote look like. A doctrine of God-based faith says, If you believe God and have faith in Him, your experiences may change, but your faith doesn't. Peace be unto you.
Now love God, live in submission to Him, and do as you please. Let's look at some biblical examples of faith. In Exodus 14.31, after God had destroyed the Egyptians who were pursuing the Israelites, the text says, When Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. In response to the things God had already done, then the people believed in the Lord. Our ability to believe God and have faith is only possible because God is first faithful. From divine faithfulness comes exclusive demands, obedience to those exclusive demands, the rejection of idols, praise of God, and a totality of life based exclusively on trust in He who is eternally trustworthy. Hence, faith means believing God and trusting in Him. Therefore, the opposite of faith is not fear, nor is it certainty. It's idolatry. The first commandment is anti-idolatry. Exodus 23 says, You shall have no other gods before me. The Bible, God's incarnate word, begins in Genesis 1-1 with, In the beginning, God. It does not start with, in the beginning, something other than God. The HarperCollins Bible Dictionary says, In fact, the opposite of faithfulness is apostasy, as, for example, in Deuteronomy 32.30, in which the phrase, Children in whom there is no faithfulness, is synonymous with idolatry. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul broadly expounds on the topic of faith. He affirms that faith is always toward God, specifically toward the promise of salvation through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Paul repeatedly speaks of faith as an active source of power that does not maintain idleness, but encourages activity. Faith has life that manifests itself in love. It has forward progress and strives. It increases and is a power that works in those who believe God. People are also capable of being deficient in faith and believing in vain. The three-part formula of faith, love, and hope is also used by Paul. He emphasizes that faith always works in love, since it would be impossible to believe and trust in God if you had animosity toward him, and that it is grounded in the resurrection of Christ and the ultimate fulfillment of being raised to Christ on the last day. And, because Paul describes faith as being dynamic, it becomes clear that faith does not negate human action because of God's providence or the maintenance and direction of creation to fulfill his divine will. All throughout the Bible, for example, we read about people always doing something because they have faith in God. Abraham had to get up and leave his homeland of Haran. Moses had to get up and leave Egypt and then lead the Israelites through the wilderness. Paul had to get up and get out to many cities in modern-day Europe and Asia to plant new Christian churches. In the Mosaic Law, God specifically tells his followers to do certain things. In the story of David and Goliath, David did not divorce himself from reality or pretend Goliath wasn't there. Instead, his mentality, one of faith, is what drove him to confront and interact directly 
with his reality. In fact, 1 Samuel 17.48 tells us, David ran up to and met his reality head on. The text says, Then it happened when the Philistine rose and came and drew near to meet David, then David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. God was never afraid, nor did he shy away from our reality, which is why he sent his son, Jesus. We should all follow this example and never allow ourselves to shy away from our reality that exists solely because of God's action. It should now be clear that faith only becomes valuable when the object of that faith is considered. So when a person casually says, you gotta have faith, the next question should be, in what? You could theoretically have quote-unquote faith in the Tooth Fairy or the New York Knicks. I don't recommend either. Or you could have legitimate biblical faith rooted in God, His eternal promises, the tangible Word of God, and the historical person of Jesus Christ. Faith, therefore, only becomes valuable contingent upon where it is directed. Therefore, when God says that if I believe in his Son, Jesus, I will not perish but will have everlasting life, and I know from the Bible that such a promise is trustworthy, then God is the one who provides the concrete raw material from which my faith is built. Faith speaks the fundamental nature of hope anchored in and by God. Faith and hope thus have tangible, real, ironclad substance and are not wishful thinking or dream projection. And, by the way, it now becomes clear that because faith is grounded in God's promises, believing in something not promised by God or not grounded in biblical truth is not faith. It's human desire. There is only one promise that bears any everlasting significance, that those who have faith in and believe Jesus will be reconciled back to God, raised up, and have eternal life. Hence, any type of fulfillment that can only be measured in worldly terms, for example, money, health, fame, or success, may be granted by God, but his ultimate promise is not temporary, nor is it natural. It's eternal and supernatural. God is changed less, but our circumstances change all the time. Our trust is not in our circumstances, but in God. Therefore, while everyone will experience tough, heartbreaking, and arduous circumstances in their life, what gives them the strength to press on is the timeless and unchanging God who transcends all natural circumstances. Of course, this would make no sense to a non-believer because they don't know God, aren't aware of his promises, don't have a relationship with him, can't trust him, and therefore are devoid of faith and Christ-centered hope. Habakkuk 2.4 says the righteous will live by faith. This phrase is repeated on three different occasions in the New Testament, Romans 1.17, Galatians 3.11, and Hebrews 10.38. This reiteration begs our attention because it means that those whom God considers holy and who keep his commandments use faith as the guiding principle in their lives. Hebrews 11.2 says, For by faith the men of old gained approval. 
Subsequently, believing in God means that you believe his word, his values, and his ethics. By faith, we refuse to take quick and easy shortcuts because such paths violate God's word. For example, see Luke 4, verses 1 to 13. Accordingly, for example, faith tells us that in the beginning, no one except God was there to record what happened when our universe began. Using human knowledge alone, the best we can do is look backward and induce what we think based on uncertainty. Thankfully, for those who live by faith and believe in God, we trust the one who is eternal and who was there to give an account of where we came from. At this point, I'd like to direct everyone to the written lesson where there are two case studies of what faith looks like in the lives of real people. The two examples given is first Abraham and second Moses. We will go over the Moses case study here only. I've always loved the story of Moses because it reflects a paradigm of inversion. That is, Moses rejected what was high for what was low. He rejected what was easy for what was hard. He rejected what would have brought him individual praise and accomplishment for what was sacrificial. But why? Because by faith, he used a value system antithetical to the rules of the world, which made his actions seem strange or weird. But in Moses' mind, his actions made perfect sense because he was being faithful to God. In Exodus 2, 11 to 13, the text says, Now it came about in those days when Moses had grown up, that he went out to his brethren and looked on their hard labors, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that, and when he saw there was no one around, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Moses was not an Egyptian by birth, but was a Hebrew of the house of Levi. As a baby, his mother sent him down the Nile in a wicker basket. He was then picked up by Pharaoh's daughter and raised as her son. Essentially, Moses lived the good life in the midst of royalty in a foreign land. Yet when Moses encountered this difficult scenario, seeing his fellow Hebrew brother being physically abused, the predicament forced him to choose. Moses could have turned the other way when he saw an Egyptian dehumanizing a fellow Hebrew. He could have scoffed and gone about his business and he could have brushed the scenario away as the way things are. But cognizant of all the worldly treasures that he stood to lose, he instead chose to kill the Egyptian, becoming a murderer, his life subsequently being changed forever. He could not go back to where he was from and had to flee. What he chose to do was to reject all of his worldly luxuries and to endure ill treatment with the people of God rather than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. Hebrews 11 tells us that sin is pleasurable, but that its pleasure is passing. Moses rejected the pleasures of sin. Why? Because his faith gave him a value system that enabled his belief in God and his trust in God's promises. Thus, he did not trust sin, nor did he place any confidence in the treasures of Egypt. By faith, Moses chose God, but that choice was very, very costly. 
And when you look at the lives of anyone in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11, for example, Abel, Enoch, Noah, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, and Joshua, they all paid a hefty price for their belief. Faith is never cheap. Faith is always expensive, and considering what's at stake, eternal life, a reasonable question we should all ask ourselves is, what are we willing to sacrifice for God? The sacrificial legacy of the faithful calls us forward to wage war in a cataclysmic battle for God, for faith, and against the many principalities that seek to rob God's glory. Look what the fallen had to endure, as it says in Hebrews 11. Others were tortured, not accepting their release, so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sown in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. What biblical history has taught us is that being faithful and living by faith does not mean living comfortably by the pattern of the world. It means believing God and honoring Him at all costs, even if that means an open declaration of war against the world. God, being the kind and merciful God that He is, has enough respect for His creation that He doesn't ask you to believe anything based on blind faith. He invites you to come and discover His promises for yourself, promises that you can read and investigate with your own eyes. In fact, He loves the world so much He sent His Son, who incarnated as a human being. People use their senses to experience the reality of Jesus. People saw Him, spoke to Him, and touched Him. Then, after Jesus rose from the dead, He appeared to more people, some of whom then wrote down what they saw. Those eyewitnesses also spoke to many others about Jesus. And in many cases, it was the miraculous and awesome real-life experience of the resurrected Christ that transformed people's lives. The New Testament calls all believers to place their trust in God based on eyewitness testimony, not a blind leap into a dark and nebulous void. This is why in 2 Peter 1.16, the apostle says, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. God doesn't want you to deny your senses to find him because he's the one who gave you those senses in the first place. His majesty can well withstand your scrutiny. The next lesson will be in the tabernacle, so come back and join us in two weeks. God bless. Thank you for listening to What Christians Should Know. For more valuable content, please visit us at chesadoffel.com. For general inquiries, email us at info at wcsk.org.